briefly now the introduction to Titus verses 1 through 4. And introductions are important. First impressions are important. If if you were to go to a job interview, in the first 10 seconds, people are already making judgments about who you are or what you're like. Do you smile? Do you make eye contact? Do you have a firm handshake? Are you too loud? Are you too quiet? Whether it's right or wrong, we judge people immediately based on first impressions. And oftentimes, those impressions are hard to escape. Introductions are important. Take the newspaper, for example. Newspaper companies know all too well just how important the introductions are. Just look at the front page. They know that they have to grab your attention within the first 30 seconds or they're going to lose you. Those little article introductions, they have to be so good that you just can't help but turn to page A9 or whatever and read the rest of the story. The first 100 words are the most important. And speaking of writing, do you remember back in your high school days, you can think back that far, when you had to write essays? Some people just hate math, some people hate science, some people hate writing. And for some, there's just nothing more difficult or more miserable than having to write a paper. But if you can conjure up those memories, do you recall what is oftentimes the hardest part of a paper to write? I think for a lot of people, it's the introduction, just getting the thing started. It's usually the shortest part of the paper, but oftentimes it's also the most difficult part of the paper to write. It determines the mood of the paper, the tone, the direction, where you're going with this thing. And furthermore, the introduction, it's the most read part of any paper because sometimes that's all people read. If your introduction isn't good, they're just going to stop reading and move on. Crafting a good introduction is an art. Not only do you have to focus on grabbing people's attention, but you have to be meaningful and relevant at the same time. It can be difficult. It can be a challenge. But there's one person I can think of who doesn't seem to share our struggle in writing good, meaningful introductions. And that would be the Apostle Paul. In several of his letters, he he effortlessly strings together complex thoughts resulting in these rich and profound introductions. Just take Romans, for example. In Romans, his introduction, seven verses long, it's all one sentence, but nonetheless he just jam-packs it with rich content and meaning and, and doctrine. And you could spend months just exploring the introduction to Romans. It's amazing. Introduction to Romans, it's Paul's longest introduction, which makes sense because Romans is also one of his longest letters, But can you guess, you probably can, where we might find Paul's second longest introduction? Titus. That's right. Titus, which is a little more striking because it's it's one of his shortest letters. But when writing to Titus, Paul likewise jams the introduction, filling it with meaningful and theologically rich content. There's a lot in here for such a short letter. Why don't we start by reading together his introduction to this letter to Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised 
long ages ago. But at the proper time, manifested even his word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now I don't know about you guys, but I think a lot of times when people read a chunk of scripture like this, when they finish, they ask themselves, what did I just read? What, what did he just say? It just seemed like this dense mass of words strung together. And the fact that these verses are so dense and complex, they do make it hard to grasp sometimes on the first pass. I'm just reading that. It's like, what, what was that? What did he just say? It's also one long sentence here, which was more normal back then, but to us, it's, it's a little stranger. So it can be a real struggle for some people to understand and, and grasp these introductions. It's like those jawbreaker candies. You know, I'm talking about the big ones. Too big to fit in your mouth. And even if you did, it, they literally feel like they would break your teeth. They're, they're, they're just so dense. They're too dense to digest. You have to break them down first. And that's kind of how I see that this introduction. It's, there's a lot in here. It's dense. And so we're going to need to break it down first and digest it piece by piece. That's what we're going to do. There's a lot to learn from these verses. Just a simple introduction. But they aren't just for show. They set the stage for the rest of the letter. And in themselves, they teach several standalone valuable lessons that, that we want to learn just for ourselves. And this morning, we want to break them down piece by piece and learn from them both so that we might be spiritually nourished by what they contain, but also so that we might better get to know Titus, the letter. Last week we spent so much time getting to know Titus, the man, but now we're going to spend our time getting to know Titus, the letter. With this in mind, I want to offer you this morning five observations from Titus's introduction so that you can better understand and apply this letter. Five observations from Titus's introduction. The first one is Paul's calling. Paul's calling. Look at verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Stop there. We've got Paul. We know Paul. He's the author of Titus. And like we studied last week, he's writing this letter at some point in between his first Roman imprisonment and his second Roman imprisonment. But for the time being, he's free, he's back in ministry, and he's writing this letter to Titus. And he opens it formally. What does he say? Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Twofold. Twofold calling he gives here. First, he is called as a bondservant of God, or literally a slave of God. And then secondly, he is called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's not just throwing these out here. They're not meaningless descriptions that he's giving. Uh, let, let's, let's take a look at these two. Starting first with the way Paul describes himself, his calling, slave. In ASB, some of the translations, they like the term bondservant. But in the Greek, the word is doulos. It, it just literally means slave. That's just its basic meaning, slave, as in a slave-master relationship. It refers to one who serves in total obedience to another. Slave. Doulos. And normally we think of being or becoming a slave as a bad thing. 
Slavery is terrible, so who would want to live in subjection to someone else? It does not sound good. But Paul here, he speaks of his slavery to God as, as being a good thing. And when we think about that, like, how can that be? Slavery is evil, isn't it? How can he be speaking of slavery as something good? Well, first things first. Do not, repeat, do not transpose slavery imagery from America onto the Bible's slavery imagery. The two are vastly different. So don't be thinking of our unfortunate and and wrong history of slavery in this country. The two are different, but understand this. According to the Bible, it is good to be God's slave. It's good to be God's slave. In fact, you should want to be God's slave. It sounds strange. Why would I say that? Why why does Scripture say that? Because that means God has purchased you. If you're God's slave, that means God has purchased you, and you want to be purchased by God. Listen to Revelations 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you are slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Look, the Bible uses slavery image, imagery all over the place because it's a very apt and fitting way to describe our new relationship with God. We are his slaves. He's redeemed us. He's purchased us. Let me show you one passage so you don't have to take my word for it. Turn to Romans 6. Romans chapter 6. All of mankind is pictured as lost, but worse than lost, we're slaves. We're slaves to sin. And there, there are no exceptions, exceptions to this. We all are enslaved to sin. And sin is not a pleasant master. Sin is an abusive master. A terrible master. And ultimately, sin kills all of its slaves. But even while you, like Paul, were slaves in this marketplace of sin, Christ came and he, he purchased you. He bought you. And the Bible uses this purchasing imagery or redemption imagery all over the place. Christ purchased you from the slave market of sin. And he freed you from your slavery to sin. Now, how, how do you do this? How was he able to do this? Well, he paid the price. He provided the payment so what's the price? What's the payment? It was his own life. It was his own blood. But being more than sufficient, Christ redeemed you and he freed you from slavery to sin. But wait a second. Christ did free you from slavery to sin, but that doesn't mean you're free. It doesn't mean you're free. But rather now... As Christ frees you from slavery to sin, he enslaves you to himself. You become his slave now and he is your master. But have no fear. If that sounds harsh, maybe a little bit scary or wrong, then you need to know that Jesus is a good master. He loves you. He cares for you. And following him by becoming his slave only leads to peace, happiness, everlasting life. thing is, everyone is a slave. It's either to sin, Satan, and your flesh, or it's to the Lord. 
And like I said at the beginning, you want to be God's slave. Look at Romans 6, verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God. Notice the thankfulness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Look at verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. You want that. You want to be enslaved to God because it only results in one thing. Eternal life. So if you have placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have trusted Him, His life, His death, His resurrection to save you, if you've chosen to follow Him in this life, then then you're His slave. You are Christ's slave. Back to Titus 1. Not only is it significant that Paul describes himself as a slave, maybe it's more significant that he describes himself first as a slave. He doesn't say Paul, apostle, then slave. He says Paul, first foremost, slave. Then he mentions he's an apostle. That's a big deal. Is that the first thing that pops into your mind when you describe yourself? Is this the first thing that you... Say when you're telling others about yourself? Probably not. I mean, just imagine you, you submit a job resume at the top. It says, slave of God. We just, we just wouldn't do that. When we introduce ourselves to others, we want to tell them the best things about ourselves first. My dad was a doctor. Doctors take pride in that little prefix, doctor. I mean, they want it at the front of their name. They want to lead off with their best credential, and rightly so. But here's the thing. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is leading off with his best credential. But it's not doctor. It's not even apostle. It's slave. He's saying, Paul, first, foremost, most importantly, slave of God. There's no greater title. There's no greater credential than this. The point he's deliberately making here is that before being an apostle, he is a slave. And greater than being an apostle is being a slave. And it's so important that you share this view. When you stand before God, what are you going to say to be justified before him? What what credential are you going to give that he's going to accept? Doctor? PhD? Physicist? Nobel Peace Prize winner? President? Of the United States, no other credential matters in God's court but one slave of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, all this being said, although here Paul props up this title of slave as being primary, he doesn't always use it. He doesn't always introduce himself as being a slave of God. In fact, Paul only introduces himself as a slave in three letters. Romans, Philippians, and here in Titus. So this begs the question, why does Paul include this here in Titus as we're studying Titus? Why does Paul bring this up? It's hard to judge Paul's motivation in every case, but it's most likely because Paul wanted to remind the churches of Crete 
to likewise view themselves first and foremost as slaves of God. And why would they need such a reminder, though? Well, it's because these churches on Crete, they didn't display a lot of godliness. There's not a lot of personal holiness amongst the Christians there. They had plenty of head knowledge, but they weren't doing anything to back it up. They weren't walking in a manner worthy of their calling. It's as if they claimed to be slaves of God, but they didn't really treat God as their master. Like, yeah, we're Christians, we're, we're slaves of God, but does that really mean I have to obey God? For a lot of the Christians on Crete, the answer was no. I mean, after all, the title of slave implies you have a master, so shouldn't you obey your master? The Cretan churches needed this reminder, and it's a big theme in Titus, this reminder. It's a reminder that we need as well. 1 Corinthians 7, 23, you were bought with a price. That's redemption imagery. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. What's he saying? You've been bought. You've been purchased. Now live like it. Now obey God as your master. To have this identity, which all Christians share, to be a slave of God means that your life is controlled by God now. You now live in submission and subjection to God's will. Not your will, but God's. So everyone here claim to be a Christian. I assume you, you also claim this title, slave of God. Are you obeying your master? You need to make certain that you back up your profession of faith and even your profession to being a slave of God with obedience to your master. We know. It doesn't save you. It doesn't make you right before God. But after redeeming you, he calls you to, to follow to obey. It's what slaves do. So are you obeying your master? Well, I think it's enough for the first part of Paul's calling, slave. So far, really, we've, we've gotten pretty far, you know, this far in, in the sermon. We've covered the first word, slave, but actually I loaded that word because I think there's so much significance there. I wanted to spend a lot of time on it. But the second word Paul uses to describe his calling is apostle. He says, first, slave. Second now, the second part of his calling, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who or what is an apostle? The word for apostle simply means messenger, delegate, envoy, representative. In the New Testament, the term apostle was used of a select group of men uniquely chosen to represent God, to be his special representatives on earth confined to the era of the early church. These men were chosen by God to to really lay the foundation for the church to come and to ensure its long-term survival. And being God's special representatives, they had a special mission. And what was their special mission? Well, we get a glimpse of it in Romans 1.1. Paul's introduction to that letter, he says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called... As an apostle, well, to do what? Set apart for the gospel of God. The apostles were God's special de- delegates set apart and sent to herald 
the good news of Jesus Christ. It's what they were called to do. To be God's representatives, God's heralds to the people. Here's a question, though. Why does Paul feel the need to identify himself as an apostle, especially when writing to Titus? Think about that. I mean, okay, it makes sense in maybe 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, but why Titus? I mean, surely Titus knew Paul was an apostle. Titus spent years working alongside Paul. He knew Paul was an apostle. So why, why did Paul feel the need to include this? And why this introduction? We have to understand, Paul is throwing his weight around, so to speak. He is letting his authority be known. Let me explain. Pretend you had a close friend, a doctor, a close doctor friend. Continue the doctor theme this morning. His name is Mark. He's been your doctor for 20 years. You have a great relationship with him. You see him all the time for all of your, your doctor needs. You go to him for everything. You know Mark well. Well, the last time you visited him, he, he said, well, you really need to start eating better and lower your cholesterol. His counsel to you. Well, some time goes by. You get a message. He gives you a call. You get a message from Mark. And he leaves you a message. He says this, Hey, it's Mark. You know, your doctor. How are you eating? Now, why would he say this? Why would he introduce himself to you as your doctor? I mean, you know he's your doctor. You know he's a doctor. He's been your doctor for 20 years. Why would he feel the need to include that title in this message to you? Well, he said it for effect. He said it so that you would take his counsel more seriously and respect his authority as your doctor. And for the same reason, Paul introduces himself here as an apostle. He wants his apostolic authority to be known. But get this, it's not for Titus. It's not for Titus's sake. It's for the sake of the churches of Crete that Paul wants his authority to be known. You remember from last week Titus's mission? Look at verse 5 of chapter 1, Titus. For this reason I left you in Crete. Why? That you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. This is the picture of, you know, here's Titus. He's this relatively younger man. And he has this mission to travel around the island of Crete, which is roughly the size of Connecticut, visit these dozens of churches, set them in order, and appoint elders. Does that sound easy to you? I can just picture Titus, again, relatively young guy, just you know, walking into a church like, hey, I'm Titus. I'm here to set you in order and appoint some elders. You get it? I mean, I can, sh- I can just see the blank stares back at him. It's kind of like that story, you know, the demon says back to the man, you know, we know Jesus, we know Paul, but who are you? Like Titus, who do you think you are to just stroll in here to all these churches and just set them in order? See, Titus was probably in over his head on this one. He, he was up for the task. He was qualified. He was the man for the job. But people surely would have questioned his authority for this task. You know, if it was Paul strolling into these churches, different story. They, may, they probably would have respected his apostolic authority. But Titus, not so much. Probably not so much. If he was going to be in charge of all these churches and he was going to need some apostolic authority himself. And this is why, get this, this is why Paul writes this letter to Titus. 
This is his primary reason for writing this letter. In writing Titus, what he's really doing is he's lending Titus some of his apostolic authority. This is a key observation for understanding Titus. Paul is writing Titus not so much for Titus' sake, but for the sake of the churches he's going to be visiting. And this explains why Titus is so short. Almost everything Paul says in this letter, Titus already knows. He knows this stuff. I mean, the elder qualifications, verses 6 through 9. Titus knows the elder qualifications, guaranteed. Also, this explains why there's very little doctrinal defense in this letter. Uncommon for Paul's letter, Titus, there's like none. Why? But Titus knows this. Titus knows doctrine. He can defend it. Paul doesn't need to write to refute some heresy. Titus can handle it. Rather, Paul is mostly writing to provide Titus a written document that shares Paul's apostolic authority with him. Titus would take this letter, he would read it to each of the churches, and they would listen. In fact, the very last verse in the letter, chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, grace be with you all. It's in the plural. Why is he using the plural? Because he obviously intends for this letter to be read, not just for Titus, but in front of all the churches. And this would give Titus the boldness and the confidence and the authority he needs to do this job. I'm not making this up. This is confirmed all throughout Titus as Paul scatters in these charges to Titus, telling him to shepherd with authority and confidence. Titus needs to build up his authority and his confidence. Let's look at 2.15, for example. Chapter 2, verse 15. He says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with what? With all authority. Let no one disregard you. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. There's more. What's Paul doing here? He's building up Titus's authority and his confidence. And he's lending Titus some of his own apostolic authority so Titus can set the churches in order and appoint elders. So by way of introduction, that's an important distinction to make. It's really going to help us get to know Titus more as we get into it. The letter is really less for Titus and more for the people. And, let's not forget, by way of inspiration, it's for us as well. It's writing to us as well. These words, though they may have been written 10,000 miles away, 2,000 years in the past, they're still for us. God has intended them for for you and for me. And Titus, it's a letter that really speaks to God's people. And so you need to to take them in and consider them as if you were one of those church members on the island of Crete. For now, though, we first observe Paul's calling. He was called as a slave of God, which we share, and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which we don't. It's Paul's calling. Let's move on now, though, to our second observation from Titus's introduction. Paul's concentration from the rest of verse 1, the second half of verse 1. Paul's concentration. Let's read verse 1 again. 
Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Paul's concentration. By, by concentration, I mean focus. Here we see the object of Paul's attention. We see what he's focused on. We see his ministry focus, concentration. Well, what is it? What is his focus? Or rather, who is his focus? Look at verse 1. It is, quote, the chosen, or those chosen of God. His focus, his concentration, it's on believers. It's on the elect. It's on the chosen of God. But notice this concentration on the chosen, it's twofold. Twofold. Look at verse 1. First, he says, he is for the faith of those chosen of God. And then secondly, he is for the knowledge of the truth of those chosen of God. Do you see that? Do you see that twofold focus here? It's twofold concentration. His mission is really nothing other than first, salvation. Second, sanctification. First, evangelism. Second, edification. That's his focus. Let's look at these one by one. First, Paul's ministry focuses on, quote, the faith of those chosen of God. The faith of those chosen of God. In other words, his first focus is evangelism. His first mission as a servant of God was to establish the faith of those chosen, of those called. Let's turn back a few pages to 2 Timothy chapter 2, just right next door. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 10. Similar verse. He says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Why? So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Go back to Titus. Paul understands the sovereignty of God and salvation. He understands election. So his mission is to find the elect and bring them to faith. But this begs an obvious question, you know, wait a second. How do you know who these elect are? I mean, how do you know who the, the chosen are? Well, you don't. You never do. And this is why you preach to everyone all the time. This is why you share the gospel with everyone. Romans 10, 13, 14. Whoever, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And you may not be an apostle. You may not be the apostle Paul. But if you're a believer, you share this focus. You share this same concentration on evangelism. Great Commission is given to all of us to make disciples of all the nations. In fact, do you know this? One of the chief reasons God saved you was so that you would turn around and evangelize. Did you know that? That's one of the primary reasons he saved you. He saved you so that, 1 Peter 2.9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light saved you so that you would tell other people about him. When was the last time you did this? 
When was the last time you, you shared this focus? When was the last time out of just joy and excitement for your calling you told somebody about what God has done for you? I know that some of you have lost this focus. It happens to all of us from time to time. We get distracted by the world. We lose our concentration, our focus on our calling, our mission to make disciples. To get back on track, though, realign your concentration, your focus on evangelism. Now, in Titus 1.1, Paul, he makes an indirect reference to this thing called election. God's sovereignty and salvation. If you want to know more about that, you should probably come to the basic Bible doctrine class. But in every crowd, there are, there's always those who use election as an excuse not to evangelize. They say to themselves, you know, God is God's sovereign over salvation. He's going to save the elect one way or another, so it doesn't, I don't really need to do anything. I don't have to get involved. They're going to get saved no matter what. God's going to do it. I don't really need to evangelize. People believe that. In their minds, God's sovereignty and salvation actually removes the need for evangelism. That couldn't be further from the truth. In reality, God's sovereignty and salvation, it's the only thing that makes evangelism possible. You see that? It's it's the only thing that makes evangelism possible. Just think about it. If God was not sovereign in salvation, if it were up to you to save people, do you think you'd be more successful? What do you think more people would get saved if it were up to you, your power alone? Of course not. People like this, they fail to understand one thing. And that is man's total inability, apart from God, both to be saved and to evangelize others. They don't realize that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And there's nothing you can do about it. Listen, God has to intervene and ordain salvation. Otherwise, what? Nobody would ever be saved. If God did not step into history and and do something, nobody would get saved. Because man, in his rebellion, on his own, he will never come to God on his own. He will rebel until death. But God must intervene and save some. And this work of God makes your work of evangelism possible. You may say, well, why doesn't God just zap people? He does. You're the lightning bolt. God has set it up such that you are the means by which He carries out His salvation. You're involved. And He does need and use you to do this work. So likewise, as slaves of God, you need to consider how well you are obeying your Master's command to evangelize, like Paul. It's your concentration as well. Let's get on to the second part of Paul's concentration here. Because remember, this was twofold. The second part of his concentration or his focus. First, he was focused on the salvation of the chosen. Second, he's focused on the sanctification of the chosen. Look again at verse 1. He was first for the faith of those chosen of God. And then secondly, for the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. The second goal, the second purpose here, second focus was to instruct and build up the flock of God in the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Notice where the second focus begins. It's with instruction. 
as Paul ministers to believers, his goal is to instruct them in the knowledge of the truth. He wants to see God's people filled with God's word, informed and instructed as to God's will. He wants them to be truth-driven. However, notice where this second focus ends. It begins with knowledge, but it ends with godliness. You see, the goal here is not just head knowledge. Paul's goal is not just to have a congregation with a bunch of head knowledge and a lot of verses memorized. That's not his goal. Rather, he ministers the truth, which is, quote, according to godliness. What that means is that the truth that he ministers, it leads to godliness. It produces godliness. It's like 1 Peter 2.2. He says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. Long for it. Why should I? Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's what it does. The word makes you grow in sanctification. So the mission of sanctification, the focus of edifying other believers, it begins with instructing them in the knowledge of the truth, and it ends with them living out that truth, resulting in godliness. God wants his people to act. He wants them to live out what they know and bear fruit. Oftentimes in the church, We confuse those who know the most with being the most mature spiritually. But that's not true. The most spiritually mature people are those who put into practice what they know and live it out. Those are the most advanced in the faith. It seems to be your aim. It seems to be your focus as well. I won't beat on this drum too much right now because we will encounter this again in Titus. In fact, there's a major theme in Titus. Again and again, we see Paul hitting on this point, that grace produces godliness. In fact, if you're taking notes, write that down. Grace produces godliness. Over and over again, we're going to see it. The same grace that saves you, sanctifies you. The same grace that transforms you at the moment of salvation, continually reforms you and makes you more like Christ each and every day. Same grace produces godliness. Like I hinted to earlier, this is a major problem in Crete. Because these believers were immature and they were not leading godly lives. And it was killing their testimony. It was killing their testimony on the island. So a lot of what Paul reminds Titus fits this theme of grace produces godliness. Titus must shepherd these churches toward godly living in an ungodly world so that the gospel might go forth more effectively. This is another critical observation for getting Titus right. And it's an observation we want to apply to our lives as well. Christian life, it's very much about righteous living in an unrighteous world so that the world may know the Lord. It's what God wants. We'll see it again and again as you go through Titus, but even now, consider how grace should produce godliness in your life and how your godly life should frame the gospel. We want to move on to our third observation now, though, from Titus's introduction. Number three, Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence. These, these last three will be shorter. Paul's confidence from verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3. 
Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word. Stop there. What is Paul's confidence? Well, simply put, it's eternal life. His hope, his confidence, that which he longs for is eternal life. He expressed this hope elsewhere. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. His hope is it's heaven. His hope is eternal life. His hope is to be with God. That's his confidence. That day, that day, that, that day will come. And I like how he, he crafts this or expresses this confidence in verses 2 and 3. In regards to this hope, past, present, and future are all crammed together. They're all in view in verses 2 and 3. It's like you're driving on that long, flat stretch of road in the desert. There's nothing but road. You look behind you, just the road stretches on into the horizon. And you look in front of you, same thing. The road just kind of goes off into infinity. But yet here you are somewhere in the middle of the road. And likewise, in verses 2 and 3, we view the hope of, e- of eternal life in eternity past, in eternity future, and in the present, all in one verse. First, Paul looks forward. What does he see? He sees, verse 2, the hope of eternal life. This is what he looks forward to, eternal life. Eternal life is both a quantity of life, you live forever, but it's also, and more so, a quality of life. You live forever with Jesus. And that's what he wanted. That's what he looked for and longed to. Not just living forever, but living forever with his God. Then Paul looks backward, and what does he see? Verse 2, he sees God who cannot lie long ages ago, promising this eternal life. And God is a God of hope. You know, when man fell, he could have and should have just executed Adam and Eve and restarted creation. He, He didn't have to... Let this go on. But he's a God of hope. And even after man fell into sin, God promised salvation. He made a way of redemption and eternal life for those who would turn to him. And unlike you and me, God can't lie. He cannot lie, and his promises are surer than life itself. He promises eternal life. And then finally, Paul looks in the here and now, and what does he see? He sees, verse 3, this eternal life manifested at the proper time. And how is this life manifested? It was in his word. God manifested eternal life in Jesus Christ, his son, his word. You know the verses, but turn there anyway. John chapter 1, just to refresh us. John chapter 1. What is this word that Paul alludes to here in Titus 1? Is none other than Christ himself. John 1.1, 1, 1, the familiar verse. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's referring to Christ. And then verse 14. 
and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Paul says this Word was manifested, that's what he's talking about. It's Christ, the Word in the flesh. And this is his confidence, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what he looked forward to, a life lived forever, free from sin, with Christ. And this also is our confidence. Our hope is not fickle. It's not just wishful thinking, but it's based on the promises of a God who cannot lie. And so take that encouragement. You know, we, we look forward to that day. But it's not just an empty hope. We have the promises of God who cannot lie. Be encouraged by that. Now, however hard life may be, however weary you are, if you stay on the road, you're going to one day arrive at its destination. You look back, you've been on the road. You look down, you're still on the road. So now look forward. Stay on the road, keep the path, and one day you'll arrive at the Savior. And that should be your confidence. This hope should drive you to keep going, to stay in the race, to keep pursuing Jesus. Well, that's Paul's confidence. Let's move on to number four. Fourth observation. Paul's commission. Paul's commission. It's from the end of verse three. Verse three again, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Just as quickly as Paul mentions the word of God, he transitions to his commission to preach the word of God, to proclaim in season and out of season. And the image of a preacher, do you know what it is in the, in the, the word itself? It's the image of a herald. So he, would, he would go before the people, he would stand up in front of them in representation of the king, and he would just declare to them the message of the king. That's the image. That's his commission. Paul was commissioned by God to be such a herald. This task, he says, was entrusted to him by God. And you, you guys know what entrusted means. God laid this task before Paul. He trusted him to do this, to fulfill this commission. It's like the parable of the talents. The master gathered his slaves. And what did he do? He entrusted to them his money. You get this much, you get this much, you get this much. And then what did he say? He basically said, now let's see what you can do with it. I'm giving you my money. What are you going to do with it? He's entrusting it to them. Paul was entrusted with something far more valuable than money. His commission was to proclaim the word of God. He was entrusted with the proclamation of the word. So what was he going to do with it? Was he going to do nothing and bury it like the unfaithful slave in the parable? Was he going to multiply it? Was he going to minister it? This was his commission. You may be thinking, now that's nice for Paul. That's not my commission. I'm not called to be a herald. And you may be right. You may not be called to preach in an official capacity. You may not be called to minister the word as a pastor, teacher, or elder. But if you're a Christian, not so fast. You may not be an apostle. You may not be a pastor. But if you're a Christian, then you too have a commission. What's your commission? 
God has commissioned each and every one of you. He has entrusted to each and every one of you to be a witness. Not a lawyer. Not called to go around and argue with people. But he calls you to be a witness. To tell everyone you see who Christ is, what he has done. He's called you to testify. Just testify what God has done in your life through Christ. That's your commission. If you're a believer, you can't escape it. You've been entrusted with this witness. So that leaves one question for you. Are you being faithful in your commission? Like Paul, you're a slave, right? You're a slave of God. Are you obeying your master who just entrusted to you this commission? More valuable than money. At the end of the day, what are you going to hear? You die today, what are you going to hear? You're going to hear, well done, good and faithful slave. Or are you going to be cast out because you did nothing with what you were given? Be faithful to witness. One who denies Christ before men will be denied by God before men. One who denies his, his or her commission will likewise be denied. You don't want that. I know you're scared. You're scared of the crowd. I mean, you're, if you're the herald, they hate the king. So what are they going to do to you? What are they going to do to the king's messenger, the king's witness? We need to trust God to overcome that fear. You need to be faithful to serve as his witness. That, that's your commission. This is One point I'm never going to tire of making is that the work of the ministry and this work of witnessing, it's not just for the pastors and the elders. It's for everyone in the church. So learn what God has commissioned you to do and then be faithful to do it. Last on our list, our final observation, fifth, Paul's companion, verse 4. Paul's companion. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Well, for this one, we're going to spend almost no time. Because we covered it last week. If you were here last week, we pretty much spent the entire time getting to know Paul's companion, Titus. So pick up that seat if you weren't here. But who is Paul's companion? Titus, his true child in a common faith, his spiritual descendant. But there is one other observation worth noting here. Because here we encounter another major theme in Titus. Do you see what it is, verse 4? It's the theme of the Savior. The Savior. Six times Paul references the Savior in Titus. Really interesting thing is, however, who the Savior is. Because Paul keeps going back and forth. Now look at verse 3. Who's the Savior in verse 3? God. Wait a second, verse 4. Who's the Savior in verse 4? Jesus. And back and forth it goes. 1, 3, 2, verse 10, 3, verse 4. It's God the Savior. But then chapter 1, verse 4, 2, 13, and 3, 6. It's Christ the Savior. Back and forth, back and forth. Well, which one is it? Well, you know. Both. Both are our Savior. And we see this developed more as we go through Titus. But it really is a wonderful testimony to the Trinity and also to the deity of Christ. God is the Savior. Christ is the Savior. The Holy Spirit applies that salvation. That comes in chapter 3. 
And so we see the whole Trinity working and participating in our salvation, in our redemption. And that's a good note to end on. Remembering our Savior. You know, we're slaves that were redeemed. We're sinners that were saved. You need to remember that. You need to thank God for being your Savior. And you need to praise Christ for being your Savior. We've been saved. We need to thank and praise the Lord for this. Paul's calling, Paul's concentration, his confidence, commission, companion. Five simple observations from the intro to Titus. And I hope these, paired with last week's message, they're really getting you into the atmosphere of Titus. Because there's a lot here, there's more to come. There's so much to breathe in. And already, just in the introduction, there's plenty to challenge us. So my encouragement to you is to be challenged, respond in action, and make certain to grow from everything we learn in Titus. Father in heaven, we pray before you this morning. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It gives light to our path. It shows us the way we need to go. And even from something as simple as an introduction, we see so much. And your word is so full of of everything we need for life and for godliness. So we praise you for the privilege of not only owning a Bible, but being able to study your word. Bless us. May we, may we learn and take in everything we hear and apply it to our lives. May we learn from the major theme in Titus, grace produces godliness, to be people who, who act and who grow from what we hear, not just sitting in our knowledge, but, but working, but serving you and being your witnesses. You've saved us, and Lord, you redeemed us. We were lost and we were enslaved to sin, but you freed us and you made us your own. So may we leave here today walking in a manner worthy of our calling, following our master, and obeying his will. In your name we pray. Amen.